of you enjoy a good upgrade? Yeah, I mean, you, you step into a hotel and you say, they say, um, the, the, the room you had reserved, was, they're all taken, but we have the, uh, the suite. Would that be okay for you, sir? Or you, you go for your economy car and they're all taken, but we have a uh, Mercedes Roadster. Would that be okay, sir? Or, or, or you're, you're, my favorite is waiting at the gate to get on the airplane. I'm flying to some place. I have to go across the Atlantic. I'm seated there looking at my cheap seat ticket. And I hear the click of the intercom. Uh, Mr. Hartley, would you come to the, the ticket counter to get your upgrade? Oh, oh, I think I can come. I get my little swagger on and I step up and I, I get my upgrade. Well, a while ago, the Lord told me every time I read my Bible, it's like getting an upgrade. It's like getting called to the ticket counter. Uh, Mr. Hartley, are you ready for your upgrade? How many of you are, are ready to open the Bible and get your upgrade this morning? Hallelujah! All right. This is Super Bowl Sunday. You can get a little rowdy. I don't know what's going on. Suddenly we've become like, I don't know, up too late last night or something, watching the Olympics maybe. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, is full of upgrades. In fact, there's 13 upgrades. 13 times the word on the front wall is used in the book of Hebrews. Now there's 13 chapters. That means on average there's an upgrade per chapter. Well, it's not just in the book of Hebrews. This runs throughout the whole Bible, but explicitly in the, in the uh, book of Hebrews, there's one upgrade or one better, 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 better after another. So today, get your better, get your upgrade as we open God's word. We begin Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. Now, you, you're going to hear about a guy with a cool name. The name, I don't know anybody. I know a lot of, particularly Africans, that use Bible names. I don't know anybody with the name Melchizedek. Here we go. For this, Melchi this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by uh, translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembles the Son of God, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Okay, so who, who is the, the what, what, what is all this? Melchizedek. What, what's with this guy, Melchizedek? Well, notice the la, at the last part of verse 3, the end of what I just read, it says, this Melchizedek, and it starts with those words, this Melchizedek, verse 1, and then verse 3, resembles the prototype Melchizedek, who is none other than Jesus Christ. You see, the name given to this guy, this, this king, the one that they're referring to here, who lived 2,000 years B.C. as a contemporary of Abraham, this, this Melchizedek, his mother or somebody gave him the name Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is a compound Hebrew word. Melech means king. Tzedek means righteous 
weakness. So he was given the name. Maybe he changed his name in adolescence. Maybe God called him and he changed his name. But whenever, that came first. The name Melchizedek, and that's what it says here. He had the name King of Righteousness. But notice, he resembles the original Melchizedek, who is none other than Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate king of righteousness. Hallelujah. Who has no beginning and no end because he is God. He's the king of righteousness. Anyone who gets righteousness from anywhere gets it from from the true, ultimate Melchizedek, king of righteousness, Jesus Christ. Now, the earthly uh, Melchizedek was also king of Salem. So that's why it says first he was king of, of righteousness, then he became king of Salem. In other words, he was born, given the name king of righteousness, and then in due course uh, they appointed him king of, of Salem. Now Salem is Jerusalem. Before it was known as Jerusalem, it was just Solom, Salem. It's the end part. You lop off the Jeru, and it's Salem. He was king of Jerusalem. Kind of significant. King of the city of God. He was king of Salem. Well, Salem, or Shalom in Hebrew, means peace. Holistic peace. Not, not just military peace, or not just emotional peace, or not just being able to sleep good at night, a mental and emotional peace, but holistic peace, peace on, in every front. Peace for the family, peace in our finances, peace in our interpersonal relationship, peace, uh, you get the picture. So, <clears throat> now, now, this se- sequence that Hebrews points out here, here's the point. Jesus, who is the king of righteousness... When you meet Jesus as king of righteousness and you receive from Jesus righteousness first, then he becomes your king of peace and he gives you peace. He gives you peace with God, peace with each other once he has become your righteousness. It's just an incredible uh, description in in a human being who lived in history uh, now 4,000 years ago resembling the one who was Uh, four trillion years earlier and then some Jesus who is first to us king of righteousness and king of peace now this this Melchizedek story comes from you wonder was this did this really happen the answer is yes and it's recorded in Genesis chapter 14 I'm going to just read a couple of verses here so you get the picture so Melchizedek after Uh, The story is this. Um, Abraham at this point was a wealthy landowner and he he lived among a a, a tribal area and the other tribes warred against other tribes. It was four against five and Abraham came to the rescue coming down the stretch and ended up winning the battle and defeating the enemies. And then verse, uh, this is Genesis 14, Verse 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. You can't make this stuff up. 
Nobody was bringing out bread and wine. I mean, there's no other example of it in the Old Testament, really, of anybody bringing out bread and wine. But here, a picture of Christ. This is a, the, the next one to really bring out bread and wine was Jesus at, at, the, at the Lord's Supper when he instituted, and he said, this bread is my body and this wine is my blood. Eat it and drink it. And whenever you do it, in remembrance of me. But here, a long time ago, you can't believe this guy coming out of nowhere, king of righteousness, king of Salem, and he's got with him two things. He's got bread and wine, and he served communion to Abraham. I mean, this is just incredible. And um, then he blesses Abraham. Now, this is significant because God had told Abraham... I'm going to make you a blessing, but nobody else ever told Abraham that. Now, out of nowhere, having heard in his spirit from God, I'm going to bless you, Abraham. Now, a guy comes out of nowhere, king of Salem, king of righteousness, and serves him communion, and then blesses him. This is incredible. This happened. And then, the next words... And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Now, did I tell you already that Abraham was loaded? He was loaded. I mean, we're not talking millionaire. Literally, everyone would agree he was a billionaire in today's, in today's economy. So when he gave him a tenth, he didn't give him a five-figure gift. It wasn't a six-figure. It wasn't seven, eight, or nine. It could have been a ten-figure gift. He, he could have given him a billion dollars. Yes, or an equivalent. Obviously, it wasn't dollars. I mean, you, know, you, get, you follow the picture. He was loaded, and he gave him a tenth of everything. This, this is a, a significant moment in history. Now, that's that. For a thousand years, there's no record that anybody mentions Melchizedek until David does in Psalm 110, verse 4. And David prophesies here in this song. Oh, so the first verse is all Jesus. In fact, the first verse of Psalm 110 is the most frequently quoted Old Testament messianic promise anywhere in the New Testament. It's Psalm 110, verse 1. And, and it says this, The Lord said to my Lord, the Father said to the Son, Sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footstool. That's verse 1. But it's, and the writer of Hebrews quotes that verse earlier in the book of Hebrews. Now he quotes verse 4. Now, if you're like me, when you're reading through the Bible, you like marking all the places in the Old Testament that point to Jesus, that describe Jesus. Well, you ought to put a, I put a cross, a big, huge cross, unmistakable. I don't put a little teensy, little quarter inch cross. I put a three-inch cross in the margin. You do it your way, but make it unmistakable. You want to mark every time Jesus pops up in the Old Testament. It's, it's part of why we believe that he, he's the Son of God. 
So put next to Psalm 110, verse 1, a huge cross or however you do it, put a cross next to it and next to verse 4. Because verse 4, now we come, here, here, after a thousand years, no mention of Melchizedek, until now, and here, here he is. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, who's he talking about? He's not talking about Melchizedek number two. He's talking about Melchizedek number one, the son of God himself, who is the king of righteousness, the king of peace. And this guy, this Jesus, this, this king of righteousness, who's the king of Salem, king of peace, he's, he's also a priest forever. Forever. Now, now, the writer of Hebrews does, uh, does a few tricky things here. He takes a little uh, author's license, and he says, similar to the way we have no record of Melchizedek's mom or dad, there's no lineage, and we have no record of his death, well, Jesus has, has had no beginning and no ending either. But there's, a, there's another difference he, the writer of Hebrews points out. You see, that this is so amazing. So the blesser is above the recipient of the blessing. So it was Melchizedek who blessed Abraham. The one who receives the tithe is, is above those that give the tithe. And so uh, he says that, that Melchizedek was greater because he's the one that blessed Abraham and it was he that received the tithe from Abraham. So Melchizedek, and he preceded Abraham, so therefore Melchizedek is greater than, than Abraham. Okay, okay, now that's saying a lot. That's saying a lot, but it, he doesn't end there. Then he, he reasons this out. So... Abraham had kids, 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 grandkids, great-grands, and kept going until Moses. And Moses instituted the, the Levitical priesthood God did through Moses. And it's the, that Levitical priesthood that runs the whole priestly deal and, and gives the blessing to the people and, and performs sacrifice and all that as priests and high priests. But those priests were sons of Abraham. Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, which means Melchizedek is greater than all these, these other priests in the Jewish nation. And our Melchizedek has no beginning and end. They have a lifespan. Our Melchizedek sacrificed once and for all and he sacrificed himself. They have to sacrifice other animals, and they have to keep doing it over and over again because it's really pointing to the one true sacrifice of our Melchizedek for us. And, and, doesn't end there. There's our Melchizedek, our king of righteousness. He never stops praying. It says this. And now we're going to come back to Hebrews 7 and verse 25. Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost 
those who draw near to God through him, through Jesus, since he, is, he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, this is so profound that Jesus never stops interceding for you, for me, for the nations. When the Father said, ask of me and I'll give you the nations, Jesus took it seriously and he has never stopped asking for the nations. Jesus is interceding for your neighbor, whether you're interceding for your neighbor or not. Jesus is interceding for the, the Gujarati. He's, he's interceding for the Afghanis. He's interceding for the Fulani. He's interceding for all the final unreached peoples of the earth. Jesus lives to intercede, and he's never going to stop. He is a priest forever. Hallelujah. Now, sometimes, I, I've even said these words. I can feel it when certain people die because they were great intercessors and I no longer have their prayers. I've, I've made that statement. But what, what, there's really a flaw to that statement. Anyone who learns to pray here on earth, do you really think when they're in God's presence they're going to stop praying? I mean, that is the stupidest thing in the world. It's utterly stupid. I promise you, Anyone who was praying for you here on earth, they are still interceding for you, I promise you. Jesus interceded for the church, and he's still interceding. Anyone who lived and prayed for you, they are still praying for you. There's no question about that. There's no question about that. But the bigger deal is, Jesus is still praying for you. He will never stop praying for you. He lives to intercede. And there is no question, and please receive this. Receive it as a revelation. Here's part of your upgrade this morning. It's part of your upgrade. If Jesus is living to intercede for you and for the nations, if you are becoming Christ-like, you are spending more time interceding for the nations. He is growing your prayer life along with his. I promise you, you can take that. That's a revelation. It's a revelation. It's part, it is, there's no question, part of becoming Christ-like is learning to pray like Jesus. If you have been listening to the devil telling you, you're never going to be able to pray good. There are other people that pray better. God doesn't even care about your prayers. That is a lie. It's a total lie. You tell that lie to be gone and say, I'm with Jesus and he's praying and I'm praying. Get out of my way. Now, we got so many cool things happening today. I'm going to abbreviate the message and, and get to the final point. And it's verse, it's verse 19. It says here, But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Okay, better hope means an upgrade in hope. And how many of you need an upgrade in hope today? How many of you would love to get an upgrade in hope? Let, let, me, let me tell you. I've been at this a while, 
leading people in prayer, trying to mobilize people to pray. And I've, I, I, I've come to the conclusion that one of the greatest obstacles in our prayer lives is disappointment with God. We prayed for something, and they died anyway. We prayed, and you had a miscarriage anyway. You prayed, and you got a divorce anyway. In one way or another, all disappointment with God is rooted in unanswered prayer. You hoped in God, and you feel ripped off. What happened to me? Now listen to me carefully, because God wants to give you an upgrade of hope. He wants to give you better hope. Get your upgrade here. The Bible says, and let's just pause on this and own it, and, and appreciate the fact that hope deferred makes the heart sick. And some of our hearts of prayer are sick because we are disappointed with God. What we hoped in, what we prayed for, did not happen. The opposite happened. Rather than living, they died. Rather than having a baby, we had a miscarriage. Rather than, than having a marriage that's thriving, we got a divorce. Well, whatever it was for you, if, there, if you can look back over hope deferred, over unanswered prayers, and over the reality of disappointment with God, would you let me speak to that right now? I want to address that issue because it's a real issue. First of all, on behalf of pastors, we have often mistaught the promises of God. We can so enthusiastically preach that God answers prayer that we don't include in our teaching the very real fact of unanswered prayer. What does it mean to hope in God? What does it mean to hope in God? What does it mean to ask God for stuff? What does it mean to, to build up a faith and to have a faith that truly trust God for a specific answer to prayer. What does that mean? What does it look like? Does that mean that God in his word has promised that every prayer will necessarily be answered exactly like we ask? The answer is categorically no. The Bible does not promise that God will answer Every prayer, the way you pray it. Yeah. Now, it's my experience, and I know you can't preach experience, that's why I'm telling you this is my experience. It's my experience that my God answers, I'd say, 80 to 90% of my prayers. I don't mind telling you that. I'm not bragging about that, but I'm telling you, answered prayer is normal. And God wants you to experience answered prayer. That's why we published the Red Hot Answer to Prayer book, because normally God does answer prayer. But that is not to say that God, by promising answers to prayer, 
removes the potential of him knowing better and not answering the prayers the way we, we always pray them. I've learned by God's grace to appreciate, even though sometimes it's hard. When my mom died, it was one of the hardest things. When my dad died, those two were, were hard. When Andrea got cancer, that was hard. She got healed. God didn't have to, but he did. But my mom died. On my way down after a hurricane, she died because of the hurricane, and, and she, I don't even want to get into it. Now, I spent the last 15 years keeping her out of situations like that. This was a hard one for me. Because part of my job was, was caring for her and keeping her away from those situations. And then, anyway, I, now I can't get, dig too deep there. But it was disappointing. But I learned to take my disappointment back to God and say, God, I humble myself. The fact that you did not heal my mother and bring her through that hurricane is not proof that you are a bad God. That is not evidence that you do not hear my prayers because you do hear my prayers. That's an exception to the way you normally respond to my prayers. And I declare, I, first of all, I humble myself under that unanswered prayer. And I give you praise anyway because you are good. And one day you're going to redeem this to me. I don't understand. To this day, I don't understand. Almost, I, I can weep at a moment thinking about that to this day. It's still, I'm, I'm not done processing it. But that has not disrupted my prayer life one little bit. God is, every unanswered prayer says God's smarter than I am. He's God, I'm not. One day I'll understand. And one day he'll say, see, son, see why that happened? So what is this? A better hope, an upgrade in hope. An upgrade in hope is we bring, here's the deal. This is so powerful. The deal is God wants us to draw near. He, he, he doesn't expect perfection when we draw near. He doesn't expect us to pray every prayer exactly spot on. Uh, often we do, and he meets us right where we are, but he wants us to draw near. And he wants us to trust him. He wants us to love him, and he wants us to receive his love, and he wants us to be nearer to him when we receive. Because the nearer we are to him, the more we receive. It's not about answers to prayer. It's about being near him. God wants you near. The whole book of Hebrews is calling you near. And you know, when you get an upgrade, when you get an upgrade, you go from sitting in the cheap seats to sitting closer to the pilot. And God wants to give you, I know when I get preaching too hard, I, I even upset the babies. That's my fault, not mine. Don't worry about it. We love, we love that. We love that sound. 
It reminds me that I'm like that. I, eh, eh, eh. I'm a lot more like her than maybe anybody else in the room. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The Father has a better hope. And some of you have been sitting in the back of the plane. Oh, you're on the plane. You're not going to parachute out. You're in the plane, but you're in the cheap seats as far away from the pilot as you can get. You're sitting in the back row where it stinks next to the bathroom on the plane. God wants to give you an upgrade. He wants you to come up front. He wants you to sit next to him. Come on, get your upgrade. But you've got to get rid of your disappointment with God. You've got to bring it to him and say, humble yourself. Don't be so prideful. Don't be, oh, I thought I knew better. Oh, come on. Grow up. Really? You're, you're praying this long and you still think you're smarter than God is? You think he's obligated to you to answer every prayer? I'm glad my God's smarter than me. I'm glad he doesn't do everything I ask him to do. I'm glad he no, does know what's best. That's not going to keep me from asking. That's going to propel me to ask. Here's what hope in God is. You're ready for your upgrade. Your hope in God is that nothing will separate you or the person you're praying from from the love of the Father. That's hope in God. Hope in God is that God knows better than you do. That's hope in God. Hope in God is I'm going to draw near to him because I have needs and he has answers and I want to get as close to the pilot of this plane as possible. Now, with this I end. We're all aware that there's a football game this afternoon. Did you know that Super Bowl Sunday is the second biggest day for eating all year? Thanksgiving. So Thanksgiving's number one. Number two is, you know, frankly, I wasn't even looking forward to what I was going to eat today until I heard that. I thought, I'm going to make some noise. I'm going to make some noise. I'm going to eat a little extra. I'm going to be part of this. I'm going to be part of this. So, you know, it, the players that win today get an extra 150000 yeah. Yes, an extra 150000 on top of whatever else they make. And the, the losers of the team get 75000 each for losing. I mean, what's going on? They should go home and be, be glad they got to play. What are they giving them money for? It's so stupid. <laughs> The artist that will perform, and I hope you turn it off if it's not decent, because sometimes it's the trashiest TV of the year, but we all like a little entertainment, so as long as it's decent, go keep watching. But they don't make a nickel. They don't get paid. But to put on the performance, it's $13 million. Super Bowl ads, I remember when a 30-second Super Bowl ad was, was a million bucks. Guess what? It's up to $6.5 million for 30-second ad uh, to, on the Super Bowl today. Uh, they better be good. They better be good. But the saddest thing about today's game is the today they expect to be the largest sports betting event, the largest sports betting day in the history of the world. It's really sad to me. They estimate, they, they expect 31 million people to bet on the game today. Now, if you're going to bet, God bless you, I hope you win. 
But God's warned me since I was a kid, Fred, don't ever bet. I think he told me that before I was born again. And there's a reason. But I, I like golf. So I play with some, some of my buddies, they like to bet, like a dollar a hole or whatever. Some like to bet a lot more than that. I say, no, I'm not going to bet. Okay, well, let's bet for lunch. If, if you win, uh, I'll buy you lunch. If, if I win, you buy me lunch. I said, I'll buy you lunch, but I'm going to beat you anyway. I don't bet. I just don't bet. I don't bet on anything. God's told me that. And I'll tell you, I just want to say this. Betting is linked to witchcraft. You think you have superpowers to guess which is going to win and by how much the spread's going to be, and you bet, but, but that's not God. God's not going to talk to you that way. You don't exploit true prophecy. That's false prophecy, and that's of the devil. I cut it off in Jesus' name. I cut it off in Jesus' name. Now try to go ahead and bet today. Go ahead. I just ruined your day. I just ruined your day. I just ruined... No, what I did was I kept your foot out of a snare is what I did in Jesus' name. But, but they say today, today, this is so sad. So, so they say 31 million people are going to bet. They're not going to bet a dollar apiece. They say that today, the biggest sports betting day in the history of the world, they, they anticipate $7.6 billion will be bet today. Makes me want to gag. Makes me want to cry. It's just sad. Here's the point. When you get an upgrade of hope, it's not betting. You don't bet on God. You don't bet on prayer. Hope is not a bet. Hope is a sure thing. Hope is certain. You can take it to the bank. Whatever, whenever you hope in God, you, you can trust him to fulfill your hope in God. The scripture says that those who hope in the Lord will never be put to shame. My golf buddies will sometimes tease me and try to make me feel shame. But, but there's, no, there's no shame in true hope in God. You will never be put to shame. Hope is the upgrade. You hope in the Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you very much.